We do have a guest speaker this morning, Chris. He's coming to bring the word. Uh, really excited. Uh, I, I'm really excited every time Chris shares the word. I, I think he has a lot of really wise things to say about the word and about Jesus. Um, if you don't know him, he's the president of ITEM, uh, which is International Training and Equipping Ministries. Uh, that happened last night, right? The baton was handed to you. You are now the president. El Presidente. I learned that. That's Portuguese. I learned that last night. Um, I also went in January. Remember when I went to India? I went with Chris. And uh, he's going to tell you a lot of stories about India. They are not true. Uh, he's going to make up a lot of things. Don't believe anything he says about India. Uh, no, I had a fun time with him. Uh, it, was, it was fun ministering with him preaching, doing the, the conferences, consider him a dear, dear brother, friend, uh, consider him a, he's like my uncle in the faith. So, uh, Unc, if you'd come up and uh, share the word. Well, good morning. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Uh, I'm glad that even though we don't feel like rejoicing often, that that is the command. And as we rejoice and obey, uh, the joy of the Lord uh, comes to us. Amen. So thank you so much for this opportunity to be with you again this year. And as Pastor Caleb said, this is almost like a tradition now. So uh, I'm glad to be among friends and love your pastor and his family so much and I'm grateful for him, and uh, just let me say, this church is blessed uh, with uh, Caleb's ministry. Um, I travel in a lot of churches, know a lot of leaders, but Caleb is a top-notch leader, uh, one of the best leaders I know, and uh, I'm grateful for him and his ministry and his family, and I know you are as well. Amen? So would you take your copy of God's Word this morning and go with me to uh, the last book of the Bible. I feel like the preacher uh, who was a guest speaker in a church, and he said, I have so much to say this morning, I don't know where to begin. And the smart article in the front row said, why don't you begin near the end? So uh, that's what I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to begin near the end. Uh, Revelation chapter 5. And we're going to read this entire chapter, Revelation chapter 5, and I'm reading out of the ESV this morning. And then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, 
which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, and saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is God's word to us this morning. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we are grateful for this opportunity to break the seals upon your word. Lord, I pray that you would come and do what only you can do in our midst. Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes, that we may see wonderful things in your word. That you would awaken the affections of our heart, Lord, so that we might be more committed and devoted to you and your purpose that you would open our ears that we might hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning. We ask it in Christ's name. And everyone said, Amen. Perhaps one of the most famous paintings in history is Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper. In fact, you see this painting uh, even in many churches. This painting has an interesting history because originally da Vinci painted this masterpiece in the 15th century. And he painted it to be a wall mural in a dining hall in a convent in Milan, Italy. And if you ever take a close look at this painting, it's a fascinating painting. There are several theological errors. Number one, the, the disciples would not have been sitting at a table. They would have been reclining on the ground because that's the way that meals were eaten in the times of Jesus. But the technical aspects of the painting itself are astounding because da Vinci captures so vividly the drama of the moment. The bag in the hands of Judas. The bewilderment on the faces of the disciples. But what stands out most as you look at this painting is the way that da Vinci places Christ at the center. In fact, every aspect of the painting, from the way the disciples are arranged to the painting, to all the aspects of the painting, are meant to draw and focus our attention upon Christ. And I think da Vinci captured something of the essence of God's plan for humanity, which is that it is God's plan for people everywhere to look upon and adore and worship His Son. In fact, as we look at our text this morning, this is what we see. That God places Christ at the center of history so that all people everywhere may look upon Him 
and worship Him. Yet, as we do a cursory examination of our world today, we see that that is currently not the case. Missiologists have identified somewhere between 11 and 15,000 unique ethnic people groups that exist in our world. About 7,000 of those that we might call unreached people groups have never had an adequate presentation of the gospel. Some of these 7,000 people groups actually have not even ever had any Christian penetration whatsoever. We call this the great, Jesus left us this great commission we find in five different passages. Uh, in Matthew 28, John 21, Luke chapter 24, Acts 1-8. And all of these various great commission passages that Jesus gives us, tells us to go and make disciples in some form or another. Uh, these passages indicate for us to go and make disciples of the nations. In other words, go and bring from these 7,000 unreached people groups representatives that will one day stand before the throne and worship Christ. However, the Great Commission in many places has become the Great Omission. And I know that I'm speaking this morning from a pulpit in which the Great Commission is emphasized and discipleship is emphasized. Unfortunately, that is not the case in many evangelical churches. Let me just give you a couple of stunning statistics this morning. Because in some churches, and this just came out recently in the past couple of years in a report that was issued by George Barna, that says that 51% of people who attend evangelical churches, now I'm not talking about mainline Protestant denominations, Catholic churches, but 51% of people who attend evangelical churches have never heard of the term the Great Commission. Never heard of it at all. Another 25% of those who attend evangelical churches have heard of the Great Commission, but they can't actually describe what it is. There's another whole contingent of this latest generation. 47% of those under 30 years old say this, that it is morally wrong to try to convert someone to the Christian faith. And so it seems to me that these statistics would tell us that we have a serious issue on completing and fulfilling God's plan for humanity. Because if it's God's plan for people everywhere to look upon, adore, and worship the Son, and we still have over 7,000 people groups in the world, which is about 42% currently of the world's population, a little over 3 billion people who have never had an adequate presentation of the gospel. How in the world are we going to mobilize the kind of Christian forces that are needed for us to penetrate these groups and these areas of the world in which Christianity is not known or at least not welcomed? And a number of months ago, maybe a couple of years ago, as I was reading this passage, and as many of you have, I have read this passage over the years many, many times, but I've never noticed the missional thrust that we find in this passage. And what I want to do this morning is share that missional thrust with you, because I believe that we're given some insight here in this passage that can help serve to motivate us for us to see a missions movement of going to the nations. And so I want to share with you four rock-solid convictions 
that the text gives us this morning that can serve as a basis for us to go to the nations. Did you notice that in the very first song that we sang this morning, there was a lyric in the song that said that God does what? He sends us to the nations. He doesn't save us so that we can sit on a pew or a chair for years and years and years. As somebody said, sit, soak, and sour, right? We have too many sour Christians already. That God saves us for a purpose. And from the very beginning of creation, God's missional purpose has been to fill the earth with worshipers. And so I want to share these four rock-solid convictions with you. And this is not anything that's going to be profound necessarily. It's going to be plain. But how many know the plain things are the main things? And that we often need to be reminded of the plain things. And so here we go. Number one, that God is in control. The first rock-solid conviction is that God is in control. Look at verse 1 with me, if you will. And I want you to notice several things that we find here. First of all, chapter 5 is a continuation of a throne room scene that we find in chapter 4. As you study the book of Revelation, you see in John chapter 1, the writer, John the Revelator, is exiled on an island called Patmos uh, as he's uh, sent there as punishment for sharing the gospel. There, the risen Christ appears to him, gives him a message to write to seven churches that are in uh, Asia Minor. And then in chapter 4, John is caught up into heaven where he begins to see things that he writes about. And in chapter 4, we have this incredible throne room scene where we see all of heaven in concentric circles that surround the throne of God. And in the middle of that wonderful scene, we see God seated on His throne. And around the throne, there are rainbows symbolizing God's covenant promises. John says that there are peals of thunder and lightning symbolizing God's great power. But what I find interesting about that throne room scene that we see in John chapter 4 and here continued for us in, in, in Revelation 5 is the fact that right in the middle of heaven, in the middle of worship, is where we find God. That God is the center of activity in heaven. That He is the center of focus that He is the center of attention. If you're like me, you might have wondered, what in the world are we going to do when we get to heaven? You ever wondered that? How are we going to fill all of our time for eons and eons and eons? And sometimes it, when we're said, well, we're going to spend eternity worshiping. And then we think to ourselves, oh, I have a hard time coming on Sunday morning and Sunday night. I mean, how in the world am I going to spend time and actually enjoy worshiping for eternity? But here's the thing, when we get to heaven and we are in the presence of God, that we're going to be reunited with the one for whom our soul was created. That worship is what comes natural for us. And so that we're actually going to be worshiping is what we were created to do. It's what we were born to do. So it's not going to be something that's going to be a chore. It's going to be a joy. It's going to be exhilarating. And, every, and I find it's fascinating that Revelation 4 identifies these four beasts that stand before the throne. They're called Zoe. They have eyes all over them. Say, like, what in the world is John trying to get across to us here by telling us about these beasts? And it's interesting because these, these beasts have eyes all over them. And I believe it's for this reason, that with these eyes they are able to see all the facets 
of God's glory. Every facet. And every time they see a new facet of God's glory, all of heaven falls down and worships him anew and afresh. Did you realize this morning that our God is so great, that our God is so big, that we can't even get to know him in a million years? That there are still facets of his glory that remain mysterious to us. And 10 billion eons into eternity, we will still be discovering facets of his glory that we did not know. And that is the beauty of what is happening here. That God is in the center. And listen, I have a son that's in heaven waiting on us. I can't wait to see my son Nathan. Some of you have people or family or friends in heaven and you can't wait to see them and sometimes we get hung up and all of these questions about oh I can't wait to have this family reunion in heaven and sometimes we can shift the focus from what scripture reveals that heaven really is is that our focus will not be on the people of the earth our focus will not even necessarily be on being reunited with those family members that have gone on before us that our focus will be on the throne and on worshiping him And as we see in the fifth chapter is the continuation of this throne room scene. And we see again this throne that is seated in heaven. And we see a scroll that the one seated on the throne holds in his right hand. This scroll is common of ancient legal documents. It says that, It was sealed with seven seals, and in ancient times it required seven witnesses to verify that the document was authentic. So here we have some kind of a title deed, a legal title deed that is held within the right hand of him who sits on the throne. I want to remind you that whenever we see this term right hand, especially in Scripture, It is symbolic of authority, specifically authority to rule. And so we know that the one that is seated on the throne has all authority. That he's not just centered in heaven. That the focus of heaven is not just on him. But everything in this world is controlled by him. That's what we mean when we say that God is sovereign. We mean that God doesn't have to call a board meeting when he wants to make a decision and get unanimous consent. We mean that God is by his own nature, by his own power, the one who rules and reigns, the one who brings all things to pass according to the counsel of his will. We could go through a litany of scripture this morning to help us see that God is sovereign over the events of this world and specifically over the events of our lives. Reminded of passages of scripture like Daniel 2.27 that he changes the times and the seasons or Daniel 4.35 that declares that the Lord does whatever he wants and no man can say to him, what is it that you are doing? Passages like Job 42 and 2 and says that the Lord's purpose cannot be thwarted. We could take you over and over and show you all of these scriptures that tell us who God is and his control over history. And I don't know about you, but for me, this is a great comfort. 
because it reminds me constantly that the despots and the tyrannical rulers and the dictators of this world are not the ones who are controlling history. God is firmly ensconced on the throne and He has no challengers for His rulership. That He is the one who is bringing all things to pass according to the counsel of His will. For those of us that might have a little God theology, I don't know how we get by in life on that. Because if I thought in any way that my destiny, that our future was left up to human machinations, then I would be in my bed under my covers not wanting to come out this morning. How about you? But that's not what the scripture portrays about our God. You know, one of my favorite movies is The Wizard of Oz. How many's ever seen it? It's a good flick. You should watch it if you've never seen it before. I love The Wizard of Oz, and there's one particular scene that I love in The Wizard of Oz. It's after the Wicked Witch of the West has been banished, and Dorothy and her friends have been promised by the great and powerful Oz that if, he, if they will bring the broomstick of the Wicked Witch of the West and lay it before him, then he will make sure that Dorothy gets home and the tin man gets a heart and the lion gets courage. And so all of their dreams are going to come true. Well, they bring this broomstick of the dead witch into the great emerald city of Oz and they bring it into the presence of Oz and then Oz begins to condemn them and berate them and fuss at them. And then Dorothy's little dog, Toto, runs up and pulls the curtain And come to find out, the great and powerful Oz is actually a little old man who is pulling levers and manipulating and making Dorothy and her friends and everyone else in the Emerald City think that he's the great and powerful Oz while he's just a little old man trying to hold everything together and keep the ruse going. Sometimes we as Christians view God As that little old man who's behind the curtain, who's doing the best job that he can. But you know, it's a big world. There are lots of problems out there. There are lots of issues. God's doing the best that he can, but he he can only do so much. But that's not what scripture says about who our God is. That he's not just holding on by the skin of his teeth, that he's not just pulling levers behind a curtain, that he is the one who rules over everything and rules victoriously. I love what Psalm 2 says. It says, Why do the heathen rage and the wicked plot in vain against the Lord? For the king and all of his kingdoms have, have gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. In other words, the psalmist is saying the whole world has gathered against the righteous rule and reign of our God. And how does God respond to this rebellion? He laughs. <laughs> he laughs. He holds them in derision. Why? Because the Lord has set his king on Zion. Because the Lord is the one who rules. Because the Lord is the one who reigns. Now, why is this important as a motivation for missions and going to the nations? Because if we don't have a God-centered view of life, and if we don't have a God-centered view of missions, then we'll never have the confidence to step out and do what it is that God is calling us to do.
Have you ever noticed that? That if we're fearful, that if we don't know that really a God is for us and not against us, if we're not really sure that this is what God wants us to do, it doesn't breed bravery. It doesn't breed courage. What does it do? It causes us to shrink back, doesn't it? But God wants us to be confident in our calling. God wants us to be confident in what He's called us to do and what He desires us to do. A God-centered view of missions. Think about it this way. What do we mean when we say a God-centered view? It means three things. Number one, that God is the origin of all mission. God is the origin. Missions doesn't start Matthew 28, 19. Mission starts in Genesis chapter 1, where God created Adam and Eve in his image or as his image, as his representatives, as his image bearer. And he says, now go create more image bearers and fill the earth My glory is too great to remain here in Eden. So create more image bearers and those image bearers spread throughout the earth so that the earth might be filled with worshipers. That's not Matthew 28. That's beginning of creation. That is God's plan from the very beginning of creation. It is missional in purpose. That it is God's will that people from every nation become worshipers. Of God. Secondly, it means that mission proceeds from God the Father and God the Son. The Holy Spirit proceeds from God the Father and God the Son. Thirdly, it means that missions results in glory to God. It's the greatest motivation. The greatest motivation for us reaching out in missions to our community and to our world is not just because we care about people. It's not just that we care about lost people and know that they're on their way to an eternity of separation from God. No, our greatest motivation in missions is the glory of God. That has to be the thing that motivates us. That has to be the thing that compels us because all of us can experience compassion fatigue. Do you know what that is? Where it's wonderful in theory when we talk about reaching and discipling lost people, but the first time they steal from you or abuse you or insult you, and then that happens repeatedly, and you realize, oh, these people really are hostile toward the gospel. It's not so romantic then, is it? And sometimes compassion fatigue sets in. So there has to be a greater motivation, and that motivation is the glory of God. It is this motivation that led great missional leaders like William Carey to say, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. We can't do that unless we know that God is in control. But that's not the only thing that we see here. A second rock-solid conviction we notice is that man is separated from God by his sin and under his wrath. Notice verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? Note again that within the scroll is God's plan for man. The seals are written within and on the back, which speaks of the fact that it is a comprehensive plan. Within this scroll, within this title deed, God's plan for humanity will be unleashed. But there is no one to open this scroll. And to make this plan clear. And to bring it to fruition. Verse 3. And no one in heaven 
or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And so John began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll. Who is worthy? This is the question that John is asking. And no one is worthy. Why why is John weeping? And it's interesting here, the Greek word that uh, is used uh, is also used uh, several other times in the New Testament. One of the times it's used is when Mary comes after the death of her brother Lazarus and lays at Jesus' feet and says, Why weren't you here? If you would have only been here, our brother would not have died. The weeping that she's doing is a heaving. It is a sobbing. That's the idea here. John has been captured by something that has awakened a well of grief within his heart. These are not tears that are just falling down his face. These are tears that are leaving a puddle at his feet. There is something happening that is causing John to go into heaves and convulsions of weeping. What is it that John is weeping about? I believe that there are two insights that we can see here. First of all, because John now is in the presence of the divine. He's recognizing his own sin and he's weeping over his own inability. He's weeping over his own sin as it becomes so magnified when he comes face to face with the divine. Do you remember the story of Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah chapter 6 that after the king Uzziah died, Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And what was Isaiah's response? Isaiah's response which says, I am undone. In other words, my knees are smiting against one another. The Hebrew literally says, I am coming apart at the seams. I've wanted to see God, but now that I see Him, I realize how sinful I really am. And that's what happens when we come face to face with the divine. We begin to see how sinful we really are. Sometimes when I wake up in the morning and my wife is not up yet, I try to be very uh, magnanimous and not turn on the lights to wake her up. And so I will get dressed in the dark. Anybody ever gotten dressed in the dark? Yeah, a few of you have. You should try it sometime. You come out with some great combinations. But uh, at any rate, there have been times when I've gotten dressed in the dark and I put on a shirt. And I remember wearing the shirt the last time, but I'm not able to see very closely. And then I get out into the light and I leave the house and I'll look down and I notice that there's a big coffee stain or a food stain on my shirt. But I wasn't able to see it in the dark. It was only when I came into the light that the light revealed that I was stained. Here's a problem for many of us is that we're comparing ourselves by ourselves. And we're not comparing ourselves to the one who is pure and perfect light. And this is why we need the ministry of the Holy Spirit who is the searchlight of God. Who examines us. And shows us our sin. John is weeping over his own sin. But I believe also John is weeping over the terrible wrath of God upon sinners. And this is what we see in this scroll. It's twofold. As you read the rest of the book of Revelation, you see it. It is, number one, God's plan of judgment upon sin. 
but it is also God's plan to redeem a people from every nation and tribe, a multicultural multitude that will stand before him for eternity and worship him. And I trust and I hope this morning that you are in that number of that multicultural multitude. We see God's terrible wrath upon sinners. And I know that we live in a day and age in which sin has become something of an anathema. Now everything is a psychological problem. Now all we require to be whole people is the right kind of therapy or to be referred to with the right kind of pronouns. And if we could just adjust our lives and adjust our minds accordingly, then we can be the great society that many humanists think that we can actually be. And so sin now has become a foreign concept to many in our generation. But yet... If we don't understand the nature of sin, we can never understand the nature of the good news of the gospel of Jesus. Because if there is no bad news, there can't be any good news. Good news without bad news is just news. It's not good at all. And we see again and again in Scripture that man's problem is not his lack of education. Man's problem is not his lack of ability to think rightly about himself or to be self-aware. Man's problem is not his lack of finance or whether he lives in poverty or whether he has the right kind of job. That man's primary problem from the very beginning of creation is sin. And this sin has separated us from God. It has separated us from being in a vital, life-giving relationship from God. And it's not that just we are little sinners, that all of us are great sinners, that not only are we born in a state of sin, but that we continue to sin. And unless God interrupts that process by opening our eyes and giving us the gift of faith and repentance, we will remain in that sin for eternity. Psalm 711 says that God is angry with the wicked every day. Now, I know this is a new concept for many people, but I thought God loved everybody. Well, in a sense, God does love everyone. But also, we see repeated throughout Scripture that God's wrath abides on those who do not worship Him. John 3.36, Jesus says, Whoever receives the Son has life. Whoever rejects the Son, the wrath of God abides upon him. That word abide in the Greek, continual, present. Meaning that it not just happened in the past, but it continues now and into the future. We see again and again and again that God's wrath is revealed against the sinner, against the rebel. And so John says, How in the world can this state ever be repaired? How can this problem ever be amended? If it's true that we are all under God's wrath, if it's true that we are all under a sentence of death, if it's true that the wages of sin is death, then how in the world can this ever change? How in the world can God's plan of redemption ever come to fruition? Who is going to work? Who is going to open this scroll? Who is going to unleash God's salvation for this multicultural multitude? 
And this is John's cry. And no one is found worthy. Think about this for a moment. No one is found worthy. No one, first of all, under the earth. Okay, we recognize that. No one under the earth is found worthy. But he also says that no one on earth is found worthy. Wait a minute. Let's go back in history, shall we? And let's bring up some of the great people, some of the great figures, some of the great leaders from the past. Let's bring up great philosophers like Plato, like Socrates, Aristotle, but yet in all of their wisdom and philosophy, they're not worthy. Let's bring up great military figures like Alexander the Great. How about Genghis Khan? How about Charlemagne the Conqueror? How about Dwight D. Eisenhower? How about Norman Schwarzkopf? Put your favorite general or your favorite military figure there. But yet none is found worthy. Let's think about those great figures in history who have changed lives by their inventions like Eli Whitney, like Bill Gates, like Mark Zuckerberg. But yet none are found worthy. Let's think of all of those who have advanced education, but none are found worthy. And then John says that not only are none found worthy under the earth and on earth, but also in heaven, none are found worthy. Now I can imagine all these other folks, yeah, we're not going to find any worthy ones, but even in heaven, none is found worthy? Even among the angels? Even among the elite None are found worthy, and none are found worthy. And this is the tension that John leaves us in. Because if there is no one worthy to open the scroll and unleash God's plan of redemption, then we remain in our sin. The wrath of God continues to abide upon us, and we have no hope. So here's the question. Who will mediate On our behalf. Aren't you glad that the scene doesn't end there. After verse 4. Because it doesn't. Look at verse 5. And one of the elders said to me. Weep no more. For behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David. Has conquered so that he can open the scroll. And its seven seals. Now John is giving us the identity here of who this mediator is going to be. We don't have time to go back and look at each one. But we see that each one, that he's a descendant of Jacob. So we know that he comes from the line of Judah because Jacob prophesied over Judah that he would be like a lion among his brothers. We see that he comes from the ancestry of David so that we know that he has a kingly place in a kingly line and we see that he has conquered but here's the surprise in the text the surprise in the text is how he's conquered look at verse 6 and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain 
with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the world. In other words, this figure, this lamb who is standing at the center of heaven and being presented before all of the heavenly throngs is full of perfect uh, he's full of wisdom, full of beauty, full of perfection. That's what these, this idea of seven means. And so we see that the identity of this lion, the identity of this root of David, the identity of this one who has conquered, this lamb, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's conquered not through strength. He's conquered through sacrifice. Because he's presented as a lamb. Do you see that? Did you know that the only person, the only writer in scripture that refers to Jesus as the lamb of God is John. It's a title unique to John. He uses it two times in the gospel of John. Guess how many times in the book of Revelation John refers to Jesus as the lamb? 28 times. 28 times. Why is it that he refers to Jesus so often as lamb in Revelation? Because of why Revelation was written in the context in which it was written. Revelation was written to a group of churches that were undergoing harsh persecution and hostility from the outside world. And John wants to remind them that your Savior, the one who was found worthy to open the scrolls and unleash and secure and finalize your redemption, that he sacrificed that he suffered and if he conquered through sacrifice and suffering so it is that you also will succeed and conquer the same way not through strength but through sacrifice this is the way of the lamb the way of the lamb is not through strength and so often we think that this is the way that we're going to change things in America. If we could just get the right president, if we could just get the Republicans in office, if we could just get the right Democrat in office, if we could just get the right administration, if we could just get prayer back in the schools, if we could just strong arm our way politically to get what we want to get done, then there's no doubt that there will be a revival. And the whole time I read this text, I'm reminded that this is not God's call, that God's call for us is the way that we win is different. We win not through strength. We win through weakness. That is through death and sacrifice. Ultimately that victory comes. How many of you are wearing a cross around your neck this morning? Many of you have a cross and you wear it as jewelry. We see this even from non-Christians. We wear crosses around our neck to identify us many times as, as believers in Christ, as Christians. But did you know that if you were to wear that cross in the first century, that people would have looked at you and would have reviled you? Why in the world would you wear that horribly offensive, vile symbol around your neck? Because in the ancient world, crucifixion was the most vile, damnable death that anyone could possibly die. It was saved. In fact, Roman citizens were, uh, were excluded from crucifixion. It was considered beyond the pale for Roman citizens to be crucified. In fact, Roman, many Roman historians never even wrote about crucifixion. They barely mentioned it. The most that we know about crucifixion comes from Josephus. 
the Jewish historian. But why is it that Roman writers didn't write about crucifixion? It was better not even to mention such horrible things in public. There's a piece of graffiti that was discovered where a prostitute told her lover to go crucify himself. It was considered a curse word. Because they existed in an honor-shame culture. If you were crucified, if a member of your family was crucified, you completely excommunicated that person from the family because they had brought shame upon you, they had brought shame upon the family, they had brought shame upon the community, and you were done with them. They were anathema. Now, I want you to imagine with me, if you will, that the early disciples said, we're going to take this symbol, we're going to proclaim this one who has died by crucifixion, and we're going to present him as Lord and Christ. Hmm. How far do you think that would get in the ancient world? It would be like this. Imagine the most vile criminal you can think of today. All right, take a minute. Who is the most vile criminal that you can think of today? Now I want you to imagine going out from this place and beginning to proclaim him Lord and Master for the whole world to worship. That's what it was like in the first century. Unless this message were supernatural, it would have never penetrated anyone and any heart in any area. But this message is supernatural. This message, this countercultural gospel in which God turns the wisdom of this world on its head and we see His wisdom in bringing strength out of weakness, in bringing life out of death. We win not through strength, but through weakness. And why is this important as a motivation for going to the nations? Because God has called us. He sent us out to go out as sheep among wolves. We think God calls us out to go out as sheep among sheep. No, go. I'm sending you out to the rabid wolves of the world. And some of you are going to die. Some of you are going to give up everything. Some of you are going to lose all of your worldly possessions. But it's okay because the seed that's planted in the ground, the weakness that you display, ultimately the power of the gospel will be displayed. I don't know about you, but this encourages me because it helps me to recognize that in my weakness, I'm just the man God is looking for. (laughs) Not one of many talents, not one of noble birth, not one of great means, but one of weakness that God can display his strength through. I want you to notice something else, though, not just the way of the lamb, but the weapons of the lamb. When he had taken the scroll, verse 8, Four living creatures, the 24 elders, they fell down. They each held what? A harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. A harp, the harp symbolizing worship, and the golden bowl of incense symbolizing prayer. Do you see that? What John is telling us here, the Holy Spirit through John is telling us, is that this is the way the kingdom advances. This is the way we win. It's not through political power. It's not through getting the right person in office. It's not through the right administration. The way the church wins in the 21st century is the way that it's always won since the very beginning of the church on the day of Pentecost. It is through concerted prayer and worship. That is the way the kingdom advances. If I had time, I'd take you through every momentous before the gospel actually penetrated a new area in the book of Acts. It is always prefaced through prayer. 
It's an evident pattern that you see throughout the book of Acts. And it's a reminder to us today, even though sometimes we feel our prayers maybe might not, might not be getting any higher than the ceiling, we pray and it seems like nothing is happening. Can I tell you that our prayer and that our worship is advancing God's kingdom? It's advancing God's kingdom in Astoria. It's advancing God's kingdom around the world. So let's not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we will reap if we faint not. And then notice the exaltation of the Lamb, verses 9 and 10. Worthy are you. You were slain by your blood. You ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Notice all the nations. Do you notice that there are people from every people group in the world? 7,000 unreached people groups, November 5, 2023, that have never heard the gospel. But John says there'll be representatives there before the throne from every one of those. What does that mean for us? It means that the triumph of the gospel is certain. The triumph of the gospel is certain. So often we wring our hands and we think about how religion has declined in America, specifically Christianity. It doesn't have the cultural credibility that it did many years ago. Churches are declining. Churches are closing down. And if we're not careful, we can slide down that slippery slope of thinking somehow the gospel has lost its power. But can I tell you and remind you this morning that Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he's building his church around the world. And it gives us confidence as those he's sending to the nations that there will be those that hear his word, that will place their faith in Christ, that will be a part of this great multicultural multitude that stand before the throne. That you and I, one of these days, we're going to be standing before the throne of God in a sea of brown and black and white and yellow faces. And we're going to turn around to our neighbor and we're going to say, I'm so glad you made it. And that person is going to say, yeah, do you know why I'm here? Because on August the 12th, 1978, there was a missionary that came to a service that you were in and spoke about the need to reach my tribal people group. And you gave $100 to that missionary, which enabled him to come to my tribe and preach the gospel. And I heard the gospel for the first time and gave my life to Christ. And I'm here today. By one simple act of obedience on the part of God's people. The triumph of the gospel is certain. It's interesting that in the midst of the signs that Jesus gives us in Matthew chapter 24 of the end, and again, remember the end times start with the day of Pentecost, right? Peter said this is that spirit prophesied, symbolizing that these are the beginning of the last days. But as we look at the day in which we live, we could call it the end of the end of, of the age. That in the midst of all of the wars and the rumors of wars and the famine and the pestilence and the disease, Jesus mentions in verse 14 that this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached as a testimony to all nations. In the midst of all the negative stuff, 
in the midst of all the challenging circumstances, in the midst of deconstruction and people walking away from their faith, in the midst of the world being on fire, Jesus said that one sure sign will remain, that this gospel will not be neutered, that this gospel will be proclaimed, it will be proclaimed in power, and that there will be multitudes that respond to it. So let us not ever think for a moment that somehow, some way, the gospel is losing its power. If I were to take you around the world today and give you a survey, you would see that so many people groups are finding Christ. Many Muslim people groups, there's been a massive uh, in, in influx of Muslims who are hearing the gospel for the first time and repenting and coming to Jesus. If I were to ask you this morning and say, where do you think that Christianity is growing the fast? What nation? You might be surprised to find out it is in the nation of Iran. Stronghold. Muslim influence, Muslim government, but yet Christianity is growing by leaps and bounds. Why? Because God's word is not bound. Because God's people go forth and are willing to give everything, even lay down their life because they want the earth to be filled with worshipers. God is in control. We're separated by our sins and under His wrath, but Jesus opens God's plan of redemption, His plan for humanity, fulfills it, accomplishes the work that we could not accomplish by living the life we could not live, dying the death we deserve to die. Sending into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning. We know that because of what he's done, that the triumph of the gospel is certain. Will you this morning participate in this great gospel call to go to the nations, to go to your neighborhood, to go across the street to your neighbor, to reach Astoria, to reach Seaside of Oregon, this great message? the gospel of Jesus. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for the power of your word to bring us to repentance, to encourage us, to thrill our hearts. Lord, to challenge us and motivate us to seek your glory and to seek a closer walk with you. So may it be so. May it be so. These thousands of unreached people groups, we pray that you would use us in this church Lord, to be a vessel, to be a conduit of the gospel, so that those that you have destined, those that you have called, those that you have ordained to come to know you, would come to know you and be a part of that great multicultural multitude that stands before you worshiping for eternity. It's in Christ's name. Amen.